Let's just pray. Father, we just thank you once again for having us gather here together to hear your word. And I uh, just ask that you'll allow us to hear your voice and your word by the Holy Spirit, Lord. And you'll just speak to all of us tonight clearly. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, we read, And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, speaking of Jesus, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? And how he went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And he entered again, continuing in chapter 3, he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace, and when he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And so, you know... The first read this accounts are kind of like, well, how am I going to preach out of this? You know, when you're re reading all of this, now, obviously we have a healing account there, but you're kind of like, well, how does this apply to us? We're not really, we don't observe the Sabbath here at our church. We don't meet in a synagogue. And, you know, I don't think anybody walks through the cornfield to get their lunch after church on Sunday. I mean, somebody might, I don't know. I mean, we were talking about Yule Gibbons Sunday with Mr. Rudy, you know. For those of you that are old enough, they used to have a commercial. This old guy, he would eat pine cones. He said they're edible. He's trying to promote grape nuts, which nobody wants to eat. All right, you'd probably rather eat a pine cone. So we pretty much go to restaurants and eat at home. But I think as we start looking more at what's here, it'll become relevant to our situation here. Now, I think the key to understanding what's going on here is the key, whatever, one of the keys to help us understand is if you look back at the last verse we read, Mark 3, 6, and it says there, and the Pharisees went forth and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And they have two groups here that honestly, they're strange bedfellows, so to speak, because the Pharisees and the Herodians had typically nothing to do with each others. So the Pharisees were the religious establishment and they had no interest in politics. But the Herodians, they were the Jewish aristocrats. And they liked the policies of Herod. They favored those. And they supported Rome. So they're the social elites. So you have the religious group and the political group that typically would have nothing to do with each other. But they're getting together here. Because they can come together and agree on one thing. And that is that Jesus is upsetting apple cart. He's upsetting their systems and he needs to be destroyed. And, you know, when you read this account, to me, it strikes me that, like, aren't they kind of getting, like, a little bit too upset over a man getting his hand healed? Doesn't that seem like a bit of an overreaction <laughs> to that? But actually, what's going on here, it's an accumulation of Jesus 
coming against the Pharisees and coming against their whole approach to life and their whole approach to religion. He's coming against that. So first, you know, he's got the presumption to forgive a man's sins. And they are like, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sins. And then the next thing we read about what he's friendly with sinners and he's eating with them. And he, they are like, how is it? <laughs> what is he doing? He's eating with these publicans and sinners. Not only eating with them, he's eating with them when he should be fasting like us. We're the pious ones. And he's supposed to be this holy man. They're like, what is the deal here? And then we read these two accounts here. He's just flagrantly violating all their little Sabbath rules that they'd laid down. So the heart of the problem is what? So they're coming against him about fasting. They're coming against him about the Sabbath. But or is that really what the issue is? Is that really the heart of the problem? I don't think so. Because I think the heart of the problem is how does a man or woman receive forgiveness of sins and maintain a relationship with God? Because the Pharisees had one view and Jesus had another. And the two cannot mix. It's totally impossible for their two different viewpoints to mix. So the Pharisees would say, hey, the way to God is what? Obedience to the law. Outward obedience to the letter will make you right with God. Make a man or woman right with God. And they're saying you have got to be willing to stay straight between the lines we're setting. And it's a hard road to hoe. They had 613 little laws that you had to observe and obey to be in their little group. It's a tedious burden. Jesus said, heavy burdens and grievous to be born, you lay them on men's shoulders. So it was painful to stay on that line they had drawn that they say, this is the only way you can be right with God. Painful. <laughs> you know, the other night, <laughs> my, my little boy, they, they gave him a soccer ball. He's never played soccer before. And they had this, these lines going <laughs> on this field. And apparently, I'm just watching from the car. Apparently, they must have told him, you've got to keep that ball like right on that line. So he's taking the letter of the law and I'm talking about it's painful to be born. He is like going real slow, very carefully. And I mean, the line's backing up behind him. <laughs> I'm thinking, John, I just want you to get it close, buddy. But you know, I can't tell him that now, you know. I have to talk to him about that later. But that's kind of like what we have here. It's just this tedious burden that they're carrying. It's backing up everything, you know. <laughs> very few people could measure up to what the Pharisees wanted you to do. It's, they've got their insiders club. And that's what they have. It's an insider's club. And here comes Jesus with his new wine message. And what's he doing? He's calling the outsiders to himself, the lepers, the tax collectors, the sinners, the demon-possessed, the rough fishermen. He's calling sinners to repentance. And what's he doing, though? He's giving them life. He's making them whole. He's restoring what the devil has stolen from men with the new cloth, new wine message and it's totally contrary to the message of the pharisees and it's blowing up literally he said he would do that in verses 21 and 22 it's blowing up their old hard brittle wine skins and so they're like hey before he just totally destroys these wine skins we are going to totally destroy him and here's the thing there can be no compromise between these two messages because as we say, one is man's attempt to make himself right with God, and the other is God himself coming down and freely 
restoring man to a right relationship with himself. Not by man's efforts, not by any human efforts, but solely by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how the new wine operates, and we talked about that. So we look here in the beginning at verse 23 with what I'm calling the cornfield incident. And one thing you have to understand to appreciate what's being said here is two things above all defined the Jews. And one was circumcision and the other was the Sabbath. Because both of those things, they are what marked out the Jews as the people of God. And it was promoted by the Jews and defended with more than just a little bit of zeal. It was their national pride. You have to understand this. It's no small thing to be messing with the Sabbath. It's kind of like these guys now that are disrespecting our flag. That just sends people's hackles up to show disrespect. That's our national pride right there, right, for better or for worse. And so for religious Jews like the Pharisees, you didn't mess with the Sabbath. And that is what he's coming and doing. And so here they are. They're walking through this field, and we kind of have a happy scene, don't we? Jesus and his disciples walking through the field. It says they're grabbing ears of corn and eating them, and they're probably talking and laughing and eating. And what do we have? Probably up on a hill, you got a group of men, these Pharisees. They're looking down, and they're watching this. And these guys don't tend to like happy scenes and happy people, probably especially not on the Sabbath day. They probably don't like people laughing and talking, eating their fast food. So let me ask you a question, though. Do you all know, was what the disciples doing wrong? Well, I mean, we know the story, so obviously, no, it wasn't wrong. But by the law, was it wrong what they were doing? No. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. When you come into the standing corn of a neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with thine hand. That's what they were doing. But you shall not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. In other words, they're saying you can walk through a cornfield, or before that it talked about going in through somebody's grape vineyard. You can grab all the grapes you can hold in your hand and eat. You're free to do that. You can grab any corn you can hold in your hand and eat. No problem. You just can't bring your John Deere combine through and take everything the guy has. That's not right, you know. <laughs> I got a niece, I won't say which one. She likes to drop in her house, or she has every now and then. Well, she comes in, I mean, it's like the first thing she does. She'll say hi, I think. But next thing you know, she's heading to my refrigerator, my cupboard, and anything on the counter is open game for her. <laughs> one time, Lisa had gotten a meal, I think I got this right, from Panera Bread, and she ate that, but Lisa went upstairs, and she came down, and there's her meals eating. <laughs> hey, but according to this, that's okay, right? I mean, that's how I would apply that, right? But here, I'm going to have a problem, though, if she starts showing up with Kroger bags and filling them up and taking those off, right? That'd be a little bit of a violation. <laughs> you know, you can look it up yourself, Deuteronomy 23, 25. What the disciples of Jesus did, it's allowed by the law. And so uh, you would say, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is it's the day that they're doing this on, the Sabbath. Even according to the law, only, quote, unquote, work is prohibited on the Sabbath, and it's really not defined. It's not defined. So we have two cases in the Old Testament, Exodus 35. Moses talks about the Sabbath, and he says, hey, y'all cannot kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And then in Numbers 15, the one Brother Hamilton used to always like to talk about was the man gathering sticks. Well, I guess he was probably gathering sticks to make a fire, which they'd already been clearly told not to do that, right? And so he ends up getting stoned. But that's really all the more that work quote-unquote, work is defined by the Bible itself. 
So here the Pharisees decide, well, we're going to help all the little Jews out. We're going to help them understand what work is. So they came up with an endless number of practices that constituted work that would cover almost every conceivable circumstance. For instance, they'd say you cannot plow on the Sabbath, you can't hunt on the Sabbath, you can't butcher an animal. Yeah, you could kind of see how that would be work. But they go on to say you cannot tie or loosen a knot. That's work. You can't sew more than one stitch, and you can't write more than one letter. Well, I would amen that one. I would, that would be work for me to write more than one letter on the Sabbath. But also they said you couldn't reap, R-E-A-P. You could not reap. And so obviously the only way these disciples are able to eat this corn is they are reaping corn. And so in their thing, that was a clear violation of their rules, not the word of God. And that was what the Pharisees' problem was with Jesus, is he is violating their precious traditions. Here's what's interesting in this account. He doesn't argue with them about their little nitpicky rules, does he? What does he say to them? He asked them, he said, have you guys been reading your Bibles lately? He asked them that. <laughs> Let me just say this as an aside. Isn't that where the Lord gets his wisdom from? He knew the word. Best thing we can do, all of us here. I mean, everybody got started on a lot of Bible reading programs. I hope we're keeping up on that as much as we can. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And it's not just, though, reading your little passage every day and, and it's reading and praying for God to give you understanding. You have to read with a good heart and ask God to give you wisdom and how to apply it. And that's what the Lord did. And he's given wisdom here. Look what he tells him in verses 25 and 26. He says, haven't you read? Have you been reading your Bible what David did? When he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And the key to understanding what he's saying here to these guys is right at the beginning of that. He says, have you never read what David did when he had need? And so he's asking these religious hypocrites, he's saying, don't you see there is a need? What did David, the anointed king, do when there was a need for his men, is what he's saying to them. So he saw that the common bread, what was the common bread? That was God's way of meeting the priest's need for food. That's why it was given to them. That was the intention of the common bread. And so the principle is that need overrides ceremony, right? That's the principle we're seeing here. David did not break the spirit of the law, did he? Because the ceremonial aspect was set aside by the necessity. And we see the point of all this right here in verse 27. And Jesus said unto them, here it is. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He's telling them the Sabbath wasn't established so that you could prove how righteous you were or to make yourself righteous before God. Why was the Sabbath given? For man's good. It's for our good and for our blessing. That's why the Sabbath was given. So, listen, the Sabbath didn't even start with the law. Do you realize that? You know, when did the Sabbath start? Anyone tell me that? Creation. 
started right in Genesis. It was built right into the fabric of man is when it started. And it says there that God rested. God doesn't have to rest. Do we know that? What it means is he ceased from his labors. And so when it comes into the Ten Commandments, if you would put something there and turn back to Exodus 20, and it's interesting, it begins in verse 8, the Sabbath commandment. He's not instituting in here. He's telling them to, what, what's the first word there in verse 8? Remember something they've been doing. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He says, six days you will labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor even your animals, nor the cattle, nor any stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, made it a holy day. That's what he did. And I'd like to just say here, kind of as an aside, quickly not spend too much time on this, a few words on the Sabbath. So do we all in here, do we understand that as Christians, we are in no sense under the law? Now, we're not against the law, and there are principles we can learn from the law. We can use it lawfully, but we're not under the law as a means of salvation. We're not in bondage to it to have to keep it. We're under what? We're under grace. But what that doesn't mean, though, is that we're just free to live any way we please because we're under grace. Anybody that does a lot of reading, and you have to ask yourself questions, I would think, at some point in your Christian life about the Sabbath and how it relates. So there's a lot of groups out there that don't want to talk about a Christian Sabbath. And there is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. But that doesn't mean the principle of a day of rest and honoring the Lord does not apply to us. Okay, so I don't have time, like I said, to get into detail on this. But what we observe is what the church has observed since the days of the apostle. And that is called what? The Lord's Day or Sunday for us. You know, the apostle John, for instance, wrote in Revelation 1, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. So it's Sunday. That is the day that the church worships. Not because it's better than Monday, Tuesday, or Saturday. Why do we worship on Sunday? The day of the resurrection. That's why. It's traditionally been the reason. So, in doing that, we don't have any rules, do we? Is there, are there any rules on how we have to observe the Lord's Day in the New Testament? I haven't seen any. Maybe I got one of the bad versions after going to seminary. You know, I'm not reading the old good versions. So we're not like the Pharisees. We don't have all these endless do's and don'ts that are burdens on our back, do we? I don't like what this man, Louis Sperry Schaefer, wisely said. He says, can we preserve the sacredness of the day unless we have laws and enforce them? He's saying, is that the only way we're going to keep the Sabbath day holy? Is we got to come up with all these laws about what people can or can't do? I'll finish this quote here in just a second. This came to my mind. So I know people that they won't go out of their houses, whatever, they're going to stay in their house because they're going to not travel far, like it said in the Old Testament, and they're not going to get involved in any worldly entertainment or you know, outside worldly things. They sit home and watch football games all day. I'm saying, what's the difference? May as well. But he says, can we preserve the sacredness of the day unless we have laws and enforce them? Here's what we need to see, the principle. To whom the day belongs. It belongs to us. It's a blessing to us. 
Can a believer be trusted when filled with the Spirit to glorify God on the Lord's day? Can't we be trusted to seek the Lord for ourselves? what we should be doing that day? We don't need to have a bunch of laws and rules and regulations telling us what to do like the Pharisees had. When you start doing that, it does start becoming a burden. Whenever you start suggesting what somebody ought or ought not to be doing on the Lord's day, their conscience should tell them that. Because we should be serving the Lord how? From the heart in obedience. That's what Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. So a true Christian, we're free to observe the Lord's day in a manner, we're free to do this in a manner that will please the Lord. We're not free to do whatever we want to, but we are free to do that however he shows us will glorify him and please him. Isn't that what Romans 14 is saying? One man observes one day, one man observes every day alike, but each is observing it to the Lord. That's our responsibility as Christians. We are no longer free once we become servants or slaves of Jesus Christ to do whatever we want to, can we? On any day of the week. That's for any day of the week. But there's two principles that we need to keep in mind the principles is what we should get out of the Old Testament. And there's a lot. You can read that Old Testament law, and you get a lot of principles, just like I was saying. So what do you do? Somebody comes over your house, and they start going through your refrigerator. Hey, stop that. You know, I mean, it is a little rude, I think, but whatever. But I'm saying, hey, biblically now, you can just rest easy. Hey, they're just getting a few grapes and eating a few heads of corn. That's it, you know? No problem. God will provide. But the principles we get out of that Old Testament Sabbath law is one what do we need? We need rest for the body. So it's for the whole man. And the other principle is it's a day of worship and to feed your soul spiritually is what it should be. Because what does the world do? They treat Sunday like it is a holiday, a day to do whatever they want, like any other day, to work, have fun, party. That's the way I treated Sunday before I became a Christian, didn't really care. And I'll tell you, honestly, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm convicted about what this is saying. But I'm saying there's a truth here. Because American Christians, we tend to act like grace, just, we just do whatever we want to on the Lord's day. And I'm saying there's some things to think about, I think. One man said this, Christians will recognize the Lord's day as a day of Christian activity. Either they will be involved in prayer, study of the scripture, fellowship with others, and evangelism. And when you start putting it that way, people are like, man, that's a burden. They're telling me i got to be spiritual outside of church. I thought it ended at noon. <laughs> not necessarily. And I like what this other man said. He says, we may not on the Lord's day do that which is daily, usual, or for hire. We may do those things which time and place suggest for us for the good of our neighbor and all other living creatures and especially for the honor of God. Now, I'll tell you, we don't do it here, but there are traditionally a lot of churches, evangelical churches, would have a Sunday night meeting. And when I was in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, I went to a, a church that did that. They had a meeting that went on about as long as ours, up, up, up till about noon. And then people, they would be encouraged to go have lunch, maybe fellowship with other people in the church. Then they all got back together again at 5 o'clock. And they would have somebody delivered a shorter message than the one that was in the morning. That was about an hour. The, the message at night was a half an hour. 
And then they all prayed. They had a prayer meeting where, and I mean, I was impressed. Everybody participated in that. And different people prayed. They asked different people, will you pray for this? Will you pray for this? And yeah, no problem, no problem. No. And they went through and did that. And then afterwards, everybody stayed around and fellowshiped. I'm saying, it was an edifying day for me with that. Took Jennifer with me. She loved it. It was great. Got a fellowship with some brothers. I'm just saying, I'm not saying we have to do that. But traditionally, that's the way it's been. That's a good way to honor the Lord, isn't it? I think it is. I don't hate getting a lot of amens. I don't have that on the schedule, okay? So relax. All right? Just throwing that out there, though. That a lot of times you hear a message, the Lord deals with you. Is there anything wrong with maybe that night later on after you eat, take your nap, praying about something, maybe reading your Bible, thinking about the message? Anything wrong with that? Fellowshipping with other believers. I know we do a lot of that. It's good. But getting back to our text here, getting back to Mark 2, if you would. Back in Mark 2:27, when he's saying that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so he's saying in our case, the Lord's day is not given to us to put us in bondage, right? But it's to benefit us, as I've already said, physically and spiritually. So he's not saying Christians can do whatever they want, but they will honor the Lord by resting from work and letting the Spirit guide in whatever spiritual activity they have. And then he ends that in verse 28 by saying, Therefore, because of that, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And he's getting back. This whole section that we've looked at here, what do we start off saying this is about? The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord. He is the one that has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. And so he's saying, not only do I have the authority to forgive sins, but I also, because I made man and I'm the one that instituted the Sabbath, I also have the right to say, this is the intention of the Sabbath, to do good, to do good for man. And I can override, he's telling these guys, I can override your man-made traditions if there is a need. So let me explain something to you. Hope I don't cause anybody to stumble here, but for the past few years, several years, I've gone in to prison, the KSR where I go preach on Tuesdays on Christmas to preach. And let me tell you, I preach a text that is traditionally a text that is used for Christmas. What? You're all are saying, hey, gonna have to have another pastoral search here. I thought you didn't celebrate Christmas. I don't. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I preach the text, I preach what the text says. Okay? The significance of Jesus coming into this world. Luke 2, I preached one year, because guess what? The Bible doesn't totally ignore that. So I'm preaching through the book of Luke. I'm going to have to preach on Luke 2, right? And that's what I do there, Luke 2. You know what that talks about there? It talks about the shepherds were despised people in Israel. And here they are in those fields at night, these despised shepherds sitting in the dark and the black of night. And it says that suddenly it talks about a bright light appears and the glory of God shines around about them. And an angel appears to them and says, fear not. For behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And I preached on that to a bunch of inmates sitting in the darkness of their sins. You think that doesn't preach to them? That a great light has come. That's an evangelistic message. So listen, for me 
Guess what? That's just another day of the year. It honestly is. When I worked, I worked many a Christmas because I could go and nobody would be home in the house. I'd be in somehow. I loved it. Just totally people leave you alone on that day. But listen, another day of the year for me, but for those prisoners in there, it's the hardest day of the year for them. They all have to overcome depression. Why? Because they're away from their families on what is a big day for everybody else. And you know what happens? They have a great need in their hearts at that time. And you know what? Every other ministry abandons them for a full week. I quite don't understand that. But they literally get no ministries. They have them coming in constantly, don't they, Jake? Every day of the week, there's two or three ministries coming from December 24th or 3rd all the way through January 1st. Nobody comes in there. They get no ministry. I could come in there because it's just another day of the week for me, you know? My family doesn't feel neglected when I'm not there that night. And it's a great opportunity for me to minister to hurting people. And it's a great evangelistic opportunity. People will come then that will never come any other time, right? So let me ask you, what's more important? I'm saying, I don't preach about Christmas. I don't have anything to do with Christmas. I have a few of them figure it out. You don't celebrate Christmas, do you? I said, nope, don't celebrate Christmas. I just don't make it. That's not an issue for me in that way. So what's more important, just not having anything to do with Christmas whatsoever or meeting a need in a way that for me, I'm not compromising my convictions one iota. I can tell some you guys are thinking about that, aren't you? That's good. But I'm not. I don't compromise my convictions doing that one iota. So Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew's account of the story, he said this to them. When you read his account of them going through the cornfields, he says, if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He said, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What are we seeing here? God is kind-hearted, isn't he? Not demanding obedience to the letter of the law at any cost. So you get a phone call, man, I'm sorry, I'd like to help you move, but I've got to read my 12 chapters today. Really? Somebody needs your help? You know, you get a call with your dishwasher hose broken, water's filling up your house. Well, I'll be over there as soon as I get done with my two hours of prayer. Man, you need to just get on over there. They need your help now before the house is totally flooded out, right? That's the point. You know, you can't put this sacrifice, this ceremonial things you think you have to do. There's times you're going to be inconvenienced. And God's saying, what's more important? You praying or showing mercy on somebody? You'll get caught up on your prayer time easy enough, right? That's the point. And that's what he's telling them here. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so he moves on here in Mark 3. So now he's going to demonstrate that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Kind of like he said, your sins are forgiven you. And then he tells, just to show you I've got that authority, rise up and walk to the paralytic. He's saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And now he's going to demonstrate it. He said, I'm not just talking words here. I'm going to show you I'm going to heal this man, right? So probably on the same Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue. And the first thing we hear is, here is a need. There's a man there, verse 1, which had a withered hand man present with a withered hand and as usual somebody else is there present we got these grim faced pharisees had trouble smiling and they are not there to be blessed they're in the synagogue this is where you're supposed to hear from god back then <laughs> they're not there to be blessed they're not there to gain some kind of spiritual insight all they're there is for one reason it tells us right there they want to catch jesus 
making some mistake they can jump on him about, right? Have something to accuse him of. It's verse 2, and they watched him. That's the only reason they're there, whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? At the end of verse 2, that they might accuse him. Here he is, the hope of all of Israel. God himself could bless them, give them wisdom, whatever it is they needed beyond measure. And all they're doing looking at him is they want to catch him so they can accuse him. That is wickedness, isn't it? Coming out of these men. They just want to get rid of him. And they hate him. They hate him because of his claim of divinity that he just said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I can forgive sins. Because when he's saying that, he's saying, I can overrule your man-made traditions. And that was the core of their power. And so what was their tradition in this case? What's the problem they have with this guy that's got this withered hand and they're worried whether Jesus is going to heal him? Because they would say, God has said you have to cease from all weekly toil on the Sabbath. And they said to make an effort to cure somebody that was not in a life-threatening situation, that was work. Couldn't do that. Had to be a life-threatening situation. So their tradition, here's what it stated. Indeed, you may not straighten a deformed body or set a broken limb on the Sabbath. Stephen, didn't you get a broken nose on Sunday, the Christian Sabbath? What if they'd have told you, hey, brother, I mean, you're hurting, but we're going to, you know, Joel J straightened his nose out. It looks pretty good. Hey, we're going to have to wait till tomorrow, or we're going to have to wait a few more hours. Just, he's laying there blood and pain, right? That's what we're looking at here. That's what they would have said. It wasn't life-threatening. <laughs> he got a lot of broken bone go. That's where these guys were at. But there is no hint of anything like that, that crazy kind of interpretation in the whole Old Testament law. And so Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, he says, stand up, just stand up. They're, they're eyeing you anyways, and come on forward. Well, how do you think that guy had to feel pretty self-conscious? Now all of a sudden he's the center of attention. Probably didn't like that, right? And Jesus asked them, when that man, he's standing there the whole time, he says, well, let me ask you all a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? He's saying to them, tell me something, fellas. What's the lawful thing on the Sabbath? What is permissible in your little rule books, right? What's the right thing to do on the Sabbath? Is it right to do good or to do evil? Is it right to just watch somebody suffer when you have the power to help? Is that the right thing to do? I like what John Calvin said. He says, he who takes a man's life is guilty of doing evil, but those who do not trouble themselves to help the needy are little different than murderers. You can't just watch somebody that has a need because you've got your little rule and not meet that need is the point. As one commentator said, for Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. What that means is when there is a need that you're seeing that you can meet, you have got to meet it. You don't have a choice. Is it lawful to do good is the question. It's imperative. It's not just permissible, it's something you should do. It went on to say, where good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality. And failure to do the good is to contribute to the evil. Thus, it is not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath, whether or not it is, quote, unquote, lawful. That's not a question of whether you should do it or not. You should be doing it. There's no question about it. In other words, what he's saying in Luke 14, 
he asked the Pharisees and the lawyers there, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they wouldn't give him an answer. And so he poses this to him. He says, which of you will have a son who falls into a well and will not pull him out at once, even on the Sabbath day? He's saying, your boy falls down in a well. I think the King James says donkey, but the word is the word for son. I don't know how they get donkey out of that. Most other translations say son. He's saying, your son, Thomas, he falls down in a well, and it happens on the Sabbath day. Hey, Thomas, I know you're down there, and I know that water's cold, and I know you got a gash on your head, but just hang on for a few more hours. The Sabbath's almost, almost over. I'll help you. He said, you wouldn't do that. Like, obviously, would you do that? I don't, I don't know, Thomas. I don't think I'd do that to you. No. He said, really lawful to do good? Is that the problem here? That's what Jesus says. Are you guys kidding me? That is what I'm anointed to do. That's what the Sabbath is all designed to do, isn't it? To bring health. To nurture your health so you don't wear yourself out. And you're saying, is it wrong for me to bring health on the Sabbath? I think he'd say Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about, is it good to do good on the Sabbath? Doing good. That's what he did, anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. See, that's what God has sent me to do. Is it lawful for any day of the week? That's his intention for anointing me to bring life and freedom back to men. And so, you know what? The second part of this question, though, he moves from the man and he moves to himself. He said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? To save life or to kill? You know what he knew? He knew those guys, those characters, they were wanting to kill him. He knew that. <laughs> He's like, don't you think you guys are kind of missing the spirit of the law? You're worried about keeping the, the commandment, the Sabbath commandment, but you're going to violate the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, because you want to kill me, and eventually they did. He's saying, is it right to save life or to kill? And what was their response to him when he said that? It says they held their peace. They wouldn't give an answer. And I'll tell you, that riled him up, because look what it goes on to say there. And when he looked around about, he gives them all a hard look, looking around. And it says he looks with anger. He is upset. Orge is the word, the Greek word, anger. And it says, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. When it says he's grieved, that means he is sorely displeased. He is not happy at the hardness of their heart because they are stubborn. And that word hardness means they are unwilling to understand. This is funny, though. We think, well, that's just the Pharisees. Well, you know, twice later in Mark, it says that about his own disciples. He rebukes them for their hardness of heart, their unwillingness to understand. And haven't we been that way at times? He would rebuke us maybe sometimes the same way. But the lack of the Pharisees' response, it, you know, when they won't answer, it gives a clear demonstration that for them, Religion is what? It's all about keeping rules. No mercy in their hearts. But for Jesus, it's just the opposite of that, right? The gospel is all about having a heart filled with mercy that can't stay unmoved in the face of a human need. Isn't that what John says love is all about? How can you see your brother have a need and you don't meet it? And you say you love God? How can you say the love of God dwells in you? 
First John, that's all about proving that's how you can know you're saved. That's how you can know. If you can look at somebody and be unmoved by their need, like these Pharisees were, he's saying, you don't have everlasting life. How can the love of God be in you? But if the love of God is in you and you can meet a need and you're moved by it and you do, hey, that's a good indication that you're born again, that you have everlasting life. So he tells that man with the withered hand, stretch forth thine hand. And there's that guy standing there. Think about that. He had to make a decision. He had to think, well, what if I do this and nothing happens? I might be embarrassed. He's standing right in public in that synagogue, right? And these Pharisees, if it works, they may ha hang me. But what does he do? He takes the risk of faith, doesn't he? I'm going to risk my faith. That's what it is sometimes, isn't it? Publicly, you have to risk trusting the Lord in front of people, right? I remember when I got the baptism. The night I got the baptism, man, I was as shy as they could be and afraid of people. And all I wanted was to get saved. And that pastor we had, he says, well, what you need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit will give you power over sin. I've talked about this before, and I locked on to that. I'm like, I need that because I struggle with that, trying to live the Christian life before. And so he explains to me about, well, here's what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to pray for you. You believe you have the Holy Spirit, and then you step out and speak in tongues. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do what? And it was him, his wife, and my sister. You say, well, that was three people. It was 3,000 to me because I seriously, I sat there and weighed in my heart. I'm not going to do this in front of these people. What if it doesn't work? What if I'm embarrassed? I, I mean, I didn't. And it's like the Lord spoke to me and he says, if you want this, you need to get it right now. You need to be willing to act your faith in front of these people. I'm like, all right, Lord, I've given my life to you. I'll do that. That's how it came to me. And so for me, it was like stepping off a cliff. I had to trust just like this man does. If you don't have the baptism, that's how it works. You're believing a promise and you're trusting that as you act your faith, God's power will come through you. And in this case, the man had to believe that as he acted, how can he stretch forth a hand? He can't. He doesn't have a hand to stretch forth. But it says as he does it, he's trusting in God's power meets him. As he's acting his faith, trusting in God's power, God is faithful. Bam! There's his hand restored. Pow! Instantly. And that's what happens when you get the baptism. You're not believing for tongues. You're believing you have the Holy Spirit and the ability to speak in tongues. And as you act your faith, there it is. I don't want to say in tongues right now because then I'd have to interpret. I might have to ask Brother Terry to interpret for me out there. But praise God, that's the way it works, right? It ends right there. When he does that, when that man's hands restored at the end of verse 5, he stretched it out and the hand was restored whole as the other. Guess what happens? The old wineskins burst. Because it says right there, the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. They realized this, we're not compatible. One of us has got to go, and it's going to be you, Jesus. That's what they're telling him. So I like this, what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, the law concerning the Sabbath permitted this man, this man with the withered hand, he could have great joy. He could have rest and blessing on the Sabbath. The law would permit that. But here, the law permitted him great joy, but what the law couldn't do, here's what the law couldn't do, was heal the man and restore his hand. Couldn't restore him to a joyful condition. The law would allow him to have joy, but it couldn't give it to him. Couldn't restore his hand is what he's saying. Only Jesus could bring about that transformation. Isn't that what the gospel is? 
The law doesn't do anything for us. That's what Romans 7 is all about. All it's going to do is slay you. It gives you no power over sin. That's why Paul has to go in. He's saying, oh, wretched man that I am, the more I try to keep the law, I realize I have no power. None of us do. The law doesn't give you power to keep it. All it does is condemn you. It was never given for us to try to keep it and get right with God. But that's what the Pharisees are trying to do with the law. And he has to move into Romans chapter 8, Paul does, right? It's the Spirit of God. That is how we're able to walk in the righteousness of the law. Through that, that's how it's fulfilled in us. The law can't cleanse, restore, heal, or bring us spiritual life. <laughs> I said only Jesus can. It's all of grace, is it not? Only grace and the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit can give us a heart of obedience. If grace doesn't produce obedience, a heart of obedience in your life, you know what? Then the only way you're going to attempt obedience is going to be legalism. They're going to say, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. I obey, and therefore God accepts me. That is totally wrong. That's not the way it works. That's religion. That's the Pharisees. I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. What does Christianity say? The opposite of that. I'm accepted, and therefore I obey. And the two are incompatible. Totally incompatible. So we're getting back to where we started from. Here's what the real argument with this whole idea. It's not about the Sabbath. It's not about fasting. It's about two opinions on how a man or woman is accepted with God. And that went right on into the early church because the Judaizers, they say, well, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised to be justified. So it's like this. This is what they would say. So they say belief plus obedience equals being right with God. That's what... All works religions say. That's what the Catholics teach. They don't say you don't have to have faith, but they say you have to have faith plus obedience plus the sacraments plus other things to be justified. Right? And that's not Christianity. Because Paul says what? He says if you add anything to faith, what does he say? You are cursed. And they will say if you don't have that, you're under a curse. They would say we are cursed for what we believe because this is what the truth is this is what the Bible teaches and those two are incompatible and we have got to know the difference from that because I think a lot of times we think well as long as we go through our list as long as we trust God for healing show up every meeting do all these things then we're accepted by God right and that's when we're running into that top thing no when you believe you are justified the moment you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and obedience follows from that right I'll tell you how serious it is understanding the difference of those two that is death and life that is heaven and hell it is that serious justification by faith alone it's what the Reformation was all about that was the heart of the Reformation it's crucial and so think about it. Galatians is dealing with all that. And Paul asked the Galatians, he said, how did you get the Holy Spirit? He said, did you get the Holy Spirit by faith or by faith and works? By works, the works of the law. He said, how did you get it? And the implication is, if you got it like I got it, I didn't do anything to get it other than I believed the promise. Purely that, right? 
And so he says, hey, if you started that way, how are you now saying that you have to be circumcised? You have to add something to your faith to be right with God. Paul's saying, no, you don't. Your obedience is not how you gain favor with God. It's always going to be Jesus' righteousness given to us. That is what gives us our right standing with God. Now, I'm not saying we can live any way we want to. You'll never hear me say that. Uh-uh. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the change, the regeneration, all that that takes place produces works of righteousness. That's what comes out. But that's not the basis. So, let me just say this in conclusion. So this whole thing here is, they're trying to put everything into a system. It's works-based. This is what you have to do to be right with God. They're trying to say, hey, that's how you get things from God. And I'm saying, sometimes we can even do that here, can't we? Because he's coming in there and doing things. He's preaching the word with an anointing. He's casting out demons. He's disrupting their little system they have and all the peace they have. And everybody knows what's going to happen next. And sometimes it can be that way with us, can't it? I mean, we meet here at set times. We have a certain order we do things. But let me ask you, is doing things the same way, meeting at the same time, and everything happening in the same manner, is that what makes us a legitimate church? Or the fact you show up to every meeting? I come Sunday. I come Wednesday. I even come to prayer meeting. Is that what makes us right with God? Or going down whatever kind of list? And I'm not saying that there's things we don't do that are right. I'm not saying that at all. What if God's Spirit moves in a way that is not ordinary here? It's not our little traditional way of doing things. And I'm not talking, believe me, I'm not talking about getting weird, right? Believe me, I'm not talking about that. Or like, what happened Sunday? Lisa said, you know, God's put it on my heart. You know, the Lord wants us to pray for Eva. I'm saying, we don't typically do that, do we? I'm saying, and I think everybody joined in. I was blessed. I felt like it was of the Lord. And that's the way things should be. It should be a blessing and not something that is despised. But I think a lot of us, we've got a certain thing, and we have it in our mind. We're going to come here and not really looking for God to use us, to have the new wine experience. But is that the way it should be? Just because that's the way we've always done things, and it seems to be acceptable? But here, my whole thing is, what does the New Testament say? That's our pattern, isn't it? And we can't just act like... For us, if you're in here and you're part of this church and a spirit-filled believer, this is all of us, that 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 don't exist. Well, that doesn't apply, but, well, we love the word, and, yeah, we like to hear the word, and we honor the word. But then putting that into practice is for somebody else, not for me. We all have to ask ourselves that. It's for me. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul wrote this. He says, how is it then, brethren, when you come together every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. He says, let all things be done unto edifying. We're a body here, right? And we should be looking to build each other up. And that is the way we do it. And so the purpose of us meeting here is not to go through a duty and an obligation. Well, yeah, I was there for praise, and I sang some and clapped my hands, and then I heard the word. I was there. That's not the purpose for us meeting. And then we could say, well, you know, I met my obligation. Everything's great, right? We meet as a body to do what? Honestly, I'm saying New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we meet to edify and minister to one another. 
1 Corinthians 14, 12. Even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. So I understand, I've been there, I've done all that, that when God puts something on your heart and the Spirit is giving you something to share with the church, there's a battle that goes on internally, and it's a step of faith, and you've got to swallow your fears sometimes and just say, I'm just going to say this and just trust the Lord with it. And you feel like all eyes are on you. You don't know you're worried about how it's going to come out. But that's part of it, isn't it? That's part of what love's all about. Loving somebody else, you're willing to sacrifice your pride. So I would say, hey, if the gift manifests that we're not used to, I'm not saying in a weird way and at a weird time, let's not seek to kill it. Because isn't that what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus? Hey, man, you're here, you're doing things out of the ordinary. We don't like this. You're upsetting things. But that's what the new wine's all about, isn't it? Praise God. That's what I'm looking for. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians 5 says. Paul writes, rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And what does he say next? Quench not the spirit. Then he adds, despise not prophesying, but to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. He's saying, hey, somebody stands up and prophesy, prove it, hold on to what you think is good, but don't despise the fact that somebody's doing it. We've got to give each other some room to grow in that, right? And if you're in the flesh, you'll know it and everyone will know it and you probably won't get a good response. But I think if people pray and have a good heart and they're seeking the Lord and they're really their intention and their motive is, I'm not looking for any glory. I'd rather not do it, but I would like to be used of the Lord to help the church in whatever way. I believe God, you get your heart right and seek him and pray and do some fasting. We'll see some things happen here. I guarantee it. God's not holding back from us. And I believe the Lord's starting to, to move in that way, right? That's really what I think. How do you know? I'm saying, I don't know how to explain that, how you can explain exactly when God's prompting you to do something. I just know, you just know. <laughs> and there's usually a battle that takes place. And a lot of times you'll think, man, how many times has this happened where somebody will come up and say, God was giving me this to say, and I quenched the spirit and I didn't say it, and they come share it with you afterwards. Man, that would have totally confirmed your message or went along with this, that, or the other. Well, I'm like, well, next time, you know, swallow hard and share it. But that's one way you can learn. Like, you miss it one time that you didn't share, and you realize, well, that was the Lord. And then, you, hey, next time that happens to you, next time just take that step of faith. And Brother Terry is willing to do that, and he'll tell you, it battles. That, that's what the devil does. He'll battle you about all that. You just got to be willing to step out there. So let's just believe God that we can see some of that new wine manifested in this church to minister to each other. And that's going to come, though, as we're seeking the Lord in prayer. It will. But it will happen. Amen? Amen. Well, that's what I have to share tonight, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, you'll give us all hearts to understand, Lord, that it is by faith alone that you give us justification. And it's not by any works of obedience, any outward conformity to any kind of rules or traditions. And I ask you'll break those down, Lord. And I ask that you'll give us here as a church liberty and power that we can minister by your spirit to each other for your glory and to help each other out and for the edification of the church, Lord. And 
it would cause joy and rejoicing in this body. And I thank you, Lord, that you'll speak to all of us individually, that we'll all realize that we have that responsibility and no one else towards your church. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.